In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Countries around the world are tapping the brakes on the use of medicines for gender reassignment in adolescence. Here in the United States, we are experiencing a significant rise and endorsement of this path. We need more informed consent and an evidence-based approach. On today's podcast, we discuss gender dysphoria. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. First of all, I want to thank all the listeners out there who have contacted us through our email address, radgenpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions uh, that we'd like to, you'd like us to address on future podcasts, please reach out to us. We're going to have a You Ask, We Answer podcast in the next couple months or so. Mm-hmm. So the, the more questions that you could have or topics that you'd like us to address, please reach out. Today's topic is a, a difficult one for me, fellas. I think I've been delaying having this topic be part of our, our podcast because of the controversy around it. Yeah. And uh, the research has taken me in, in many different directions. I first want to acknowledge a seminal book that uh, came out in 2020, Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier, mm-hmm. who was courageous enough to actually take on this subject in in a, a woke culture um, of, of 2020, 2022. Um, obviously, this puts her or other academics or writers at risk for being called various names, you know, on, on the spectrum of being bigoted or um, phobic or, and so forth. And so it it's difficult to bring up these topics because you want to look at it from a, a humanistic perspective. Mm-hmm. You want to identify uh, the latest research and data that would help us inform standards of care. And it's around gender dysphoria and uh, transgender individuals. Yeah. And as a psychologist, you're trained and you adopt an ethical code around uh, the idea that people have every right to live the life that they choose and you support that. Of course. And uh, there's many ethical guidelines around the important value of like that unconditional affirming regard for for people of all faiths, uh, genders, sexual orientations, races, religions, and so forth. And in fact, obviously, from a humanistic perspective, the idea of compassionately caring for you know people who come to seek help for you is of of highest value but there are some disturbing trends and uh it's the data that stands out that we have to answer some questions today um traditionally gender dysphoria has uh afflicted roughly 0.01 percent of the population and almost exclusively boys mm-hmm uh, and boys who begin to demonstrate body uh, or gender uh, 
gender preferences for the opposite sex at a preschool age, even yeah. two or, or, or three. Um, um, and the DSM five, which is the statistical manual, psychiatric statistical manual reports expected it's an incidence of gender dysphoria at 0.005 to 0.014% of natal males and a much lower 0.002 to 0.003% for natal females. So based on those numbers, there'd be an incident rate of one in 10,000 people. Yep. Now that's a lot because what that means is many people who would be listening or us in, in particular, you would have never even come across somebody who was or knew anybody personally who was struggling um, with gender dysphoria. There wouldn't be anyone in your high school class, for example. But over the last decade, this has changed, changed dramatically. Uh, in the United States, the prevalence rates have increased 1,000%. And so now 2% of all high school students identify as transgender. So that, now that's one in every 50. That's high school students. High school students. Yep. Uh, in the UK, there's a 4,000% increase, 75% being girls. And the disturbing trend has led to very invasive medical procedures as a as a treatment to for gender dysphoria in 2016 2017 gender surgeries for natal females quadrupled and now females to male are accounting for 70 percent of all gender surgeries so that increase has been dramatic but it's also flipped to females to males so it's females in an adolescent period who are now identifying at rapid rates uh, as gender dysphoric. Yeah. So uh, the way you started off was about listeners having questions. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we did the podcast on social contagion. One of the questions that came to us was about this specific topic and wanting us to address it, speak a little more about that. And you're right, this is a challenging thing because I can't put my mind into that of an adolescent that um, may be experiencing gender dysphoria. But I think I can put my mind into that of a parent and how if my child was experiencing this, how would I go about trying to make the right decision for them so that they can have a happy life and, and really kind of thrive for the rest of and a lot of that is who do you turn to for and, the information, and yes, which is, yeah. you know, that's what I, I really want to bring out today. There's prevailing cultural narratives that develop through social media, through media. And part of that social contagion episode that we had was this idea that um, if one person, you know, identifies and then suddenly other friend groups and others mm -hmm. start to, to do that. And we had a really good discussion on that. And I think today we need to, we need to kind of go into this, the science of all of this, really break yeah. it down because we can't, it is a prevailing cultural narrative right now. And if you just sit there and try to attack or just bring out things without using science, I really do think people are going to get upset at that. So I'm hoping to learn from this podcast. For the purpose of this discussion, just so I understand, are we focusing our conversation on child and adolescence? No, I, I don't think we, we, we do so, but we have to be very clear about where the trend is mm -hmm. you know the trend is um for the first time it is post pubescent 
gender dysphoria. There's actually a, a name that has been um, used. It's rapid onset gender dysphoria, yeah. which was identified by Lisa Littman, who's a researcher, um, a, a, a physician. I think and Brown University. Brown University. We're going to get into some of her work mm-hmm. today. Um, but that's, that's what's changed. I mean, if, if we were just talking about effective psychological care, Mm-hmm. for transgender individuals, we'd be talking about a very small percentage of the population and hopefully we'd have this wealth of data on what they need in order to live a, a fulfilling life. Yeah, so you just touched on one of the questions that I had because some of the reading that I had done was that gender dysphoria must be persistent. And in order for it to be persistent, I would believe it would have to be present for a number of years, right? Correct. So that's why I would think it would usually present itself in childhood. Well, that's that's what the that's what history you know shows, and that's the question today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this rapid onset of gender dysphoria is a new cultural phenomenon. Kind of in the last five years, ten years, last decade. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's understand it today. Let's ask critical questions. Uh huh. But here, let me talk about why this is challenging for me. Because we know that people who identify as gender dysphoric or transgender at a, at a higher risk of mental health problems and completed suicide, we have to tread lightly because there's listeners out there who could be um, really struggling painfully with their own bodies and their own gender presentation and are have the questions that uh, many are are posing out there. How parents, do, parents, parents, how do, yep. how do I overcome this? Um, what are the long-term outcomes of such? Does transitioning decrease suicide? Are there long-term outcomes? Um, I with, was struggling to find anything significant. Yeah. I mean, a question as that we have to address as we move forward, but kind of let's, let's lay it out a okay. little bit here. Um, many people might be asking what gender dysphoria is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and the DSM-5, we've talked about criteria of DSM-5 in previous podcasts. Um, they're usually symptoms, right? Similar to uh, any medical condition, you have to, out, you have to outline symptoms. And um, six of the following symptoms to meet criteria. So one, there has to be a strong desire to be the other gender or an insistence that one is the other gender. Two is a strong preference for cross-dressing or simulating other gender attire. Number three, a strong desire to cross gender roles, to make believe play or fantasy play. A strong preference for the toys, games, or activities stereotypically used or engaged in by the other gender. A strong preference for playmates of the other gender. A strong rejection of toys, games, and activities typically associated with birth sex. A strong dislike of one's sexual autonomy. A strong desire for the primary and or secondary sex characteristics that match one's experienced gender. So we we mentioned that there has been this sudden onset of gender dysphoria that kind of aligns with the rise of social media. Mm-hmm. We had a previous podcast where we talked about the social contagion effect on mental illness. So 
what appears to be a cultural phenomenon around transgender females is that we have this extraordinary rise in post-pubescent or around the time of puberty, young girls who are identifying as transgender. It is a sudden and dramatic shift. Um, So it's from predominantly preschool aid boys to adolescent girls. It seems to be consistently reported across the Western world um, and also seen in mental health clinics and centers. So the question that is really important to investigate is what is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I always start with breaking down a word, right? So dysphoria means like hard to bear. So hard to bear and being persistent. If we're seeing this rise in in a period, a short period of time that there's, a number of things that are happening that may be amplifying this feeling of dissatisfaction with oneself. And is it possible that because of social media, because of the pandemic, people being isolated and alone, it's leading to the exposure and it's way before the pandemic. Let's, let's eliminate that. Okay. Way, way before the, the emergence happened before the pandemic. Okay. Um, in about 2000, right around that time period, wasn't it? That we 2007, you know, so one of the things that you just look at in, in patterns and clusters is there's a, there's an intense rise, there's a, a rapid rise or continued rise in, in suicide, mental health diagnoses that starts to spike up around 2007. 2007 is really kind of that year where we see um, a more dramatic increase in the use of smartphones to social media. Um, and so we're, we're understanding that the effect of social media has on um, negative behaviors or negative health-related behaviors in the mental of, health field. There's a lot of science to back that. Yeah. Right. So the first question that I had is, is just understanding historically what is um, the trials and tribulations of adolescent development particularly for adolescent females, because we've seen certain trends in the mental health community previously that, that um, can go back to almost a, a social contagion influence. One of them was around eating disorders, which mm-hmm. was a, a, has been a, a real focus of, of my, my work as a, as a clinical psychologist, my, my doctoral program, my research was on adolescent females diagnosed with an eating disorder. I was focused more on a lot of the factors that would influence the development of an eating disorder, mm-hmm. um, as well as like personality and coping uh, styles. But if you look also into some of the cultural factors that would influence the development of eating disorders, you saw the impact of media. And there has been, uh, you know, a pattern that has emerged in Western culture that the more emphasis that is placed on a certain condition um, and the language around it can develop a cluster 
of uh, almost like contagion-like effects where people would adopt the characteristics of such a group. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what we know about adolescent development is that it is a time of great transformation for both males and females. It's Probably for females more so because their entire life they've grown up with you know, girls and boys almost being very similar in size and stature. And then girls go through puberty before boys do. Yeah. So there's a development that's happening that all of a sudden they're the ones that are, you know, going through this transition where the boys are smaller. Their bodies are changing. Yeah. Right. Which brings attention to their bodies. And I remember reading research in, in my doctoral program. And when I was doing a lot of the, the research at the time for my doctoral dissertation was some um, risk factors for the development of mental health related problems for adolescent females were early development. Um, cause around that early development would bring increased attention from boys and even negative attention from females. But the, but girls social socialization patterns are, are different than boys. Um, girls are much more likely to be relational, supportive and validating. Um, and even to, their willingness to suspend reality in order to, to enter the, the worlds, the internal worlds of their friends. They connect this way. Mm-hmm. Um, girls are, are more likely to take on the depression or concerns of a friend to share in their pain. There's a word around this called co-rumination, which is the excessive discussion of hardship that actually improves bonding. Mm. So it's talking about your problems, your struggles, your pain seems to have this, um, the consequences on a positive perspective of, of social bonding. Um, but it can lead friends to taking on kind of the ailments of their friends. And what we're seeing is that social media can increase this pattern. So um, during this period in, in the 90s into 2005, 2010, 2015, there was this emergence of what's called pro-ana kind of propaganda. Pro-anorexic. Pro-anorexia. Describing it as a lifestyle. And uh, it's not that dissimilar to the rise of transgender influencers on social media. Um, because you become part of a community. You, ha- you become part of a group. Now imagine if you are an adolescent who is struggling to fit in. That you may be different you may be very interpersonally sensitive, experience your emotions intensely. It's almost you're in a heightened state maybe compa- compared to a lot of your peers. This group of, of adolescent females is prone to and has been traditionally prone to anxiety, depression, self-injury, eating disorders. The question is, um, as in, uh, is there a large percentage of these girls who are now who, who, have ex, who have been experiencing like body dissatisfaction of the developing body, and they are now receiving acceptance into a community of, of, of people where you are really disavowing you know, gender and you are self-identifying as, as transgender or somewhere on the gender, gender spectrum. So a, t- a teenage girl going through this would have to have strong coping skills, um, you know, to go through the changes and then to, to adapt to any, any kind of attention that she would be getting from others. How much of the 
coping skills are a part of are a part of this. Mal, are they, I read in the study maladaptive coping mechanisms. Can you explain a little bit about that? Well, one hypothesis um, for this sudden rise is to think about um, entering into a community and identifying uh, as transgender as a maladaptive coping strategy for body dissatisfaction. Now, this is challenging, right? Um, the prevailing view in the ethical guidelines for psychologists um, and the medical and psychological mental health field in general is around um, affirming care. So and basically, it's the idea that if somebody comes and, and presents to you that, that they are transgender and they're experiencing gender dysphoria, that you affirm that, that experience. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the downside to that? Well, we're talking about a developmental stage where if gender dysphoria was treated as any other mental health condition, we don't, you know, we don't affirm anorexia. We don't affirm bulimia. We don't affirm cutting. We don't affirm depression. It's, a, it's an opportunity to understand your clients, understand all the factors that might lead them there, and assist them and support them in trying to cope with what they're dealing with in this very vulnerable and um, transformative stage. The other, you know, the other concern, obviously, is the, the brain development of this, of this time period. So what are all the risk factors for somebody who is going through adolescence? Obviously, it's the underdeveloped prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. where they struggle to be able to predict consequences and manage impulses and they're just not they don't have the life experience or the development to be able to understand their life as a bigger picture so they're they're prone to making decisions that are rather impulsive and emotionally driven and in this time period it is so important to be part of a group so there is something that is very reinforcing uh, if you are struggling with your own body and you're struggling with your own mental health to be able to be part of a group that affirms your experience. Mm -hmm. Now the question for social scientists and psychologists, does this care, does affirming gender dysphoria, does it actually lead to improved mental health outcomes, right? That's the, that's the larger question here. But, but along with affirmative care also comes what is a, a, a new industry around sex change mm-hmm. through hormones or puberty blockers. Yep. And so when we ask these questions and parents are extremely interested in what are the, the impacts of such invasive and potentially harmful medical interventions, um, Will this improve the quality of life of my, my child who is, who is identifying now with gender dysphoria and wanting to present as the opposite sex? So can, can we have a tendency to put those two treatments together, puberty blockers and hormones. But if we were to separate them... And, and who does? Um, everything that I was reading about some of the new approaches that are happening in some of the European countries that have... Um, I guess there's a Dutch model right? Where they were affirming and then um, using puberty blockers and hormones to start treating uh, gender dysphoria. 
But so puberty blockers would puberty. be for somebody who has yet to enter into yes. certain stages of, of puberty. It's like preventing that transition into womanhood. Yes. But puberty blockers have been used for years for um, the example I saw was maybe a young child between the ages of five to seven going through puberty um, far sooner than they should. So they use puberty blockers. A rare medical condition. A rare medical condition. But in the event that a there may be a child that is um, gender dysphoric and hasn't gone through puberty, wouldn't the use of just puberty blockers provide more time for a... Uh, a doctor and a psychologist to work together to determine whether or not this is an actual situation that requires additional treatments. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, that definitely requires more investigation on our part. Yeah. Um, because yes, it would, re- it would provide more time, but at what, what consequence? Yeah. And then that's the thing that I was struggling with is are there, what are the consequences of puberty blockers? Is I guess for an extended period of time, you'd be the small child in the room not going through the normal transitions that you will eventually have to go through as an adolescent into adulthood. Do we know some of the long-term effects of the puberty blockers? Yeah, there, I mean, there's some real mixed literature out there. So I want to state that as a fact currently, that um, as I tried to investigate the medical literature on this, um, there's concerns. Um, just like there is in my field when we start looking at the role of psychiatric drugs. There's some poorly developed studies that are short-term that are going to support the use of invasive medical procedures. Uh, there's concerns for misrepresentation of data. Yeah. And then there's a whole other community of, of physicians who and countries, which, we'll, which we, we should talk about, that are really kind of putting the brakes on this rapid transition medically to the opposite gender and the and the the um the negative health effects i think what stands out um that puberty is typically divided into these five tanner stages with uh tanner stage one being no signs of puberty and five being full development of adult sexual organs Mm -hmm. puberty blockers are commonly administered as early as tanner stage two um when the girl is just starting to develop the first signs of breasts, her ovaries are still pre-fertile. Um, and she has by definition, not reached sexual maturity, but the concerns are when you halt a child at this early stage of puberty, her sexual organs freeze at that childlike state. Mm -hmm. So if cross sex hormones then follow, um, there she will remain. And that would be hormone treatment. Mm -hmm. Testosterone. Testosterone. Yeah incapable of biological reproduction or even orgasm. So if you're talking about young children and teenagers and where we are in brain development, making a decision that is going to impact the rest of their life, make them infertile. And so, yeah, let me, let me touch on that because, you know, I'm I'm trying to put my mind into that of a parent, right? So the idea of puberty blockers, and, and I think one thing we have to talk about is in, in that um, kind of like trans youth care, there are good doctors and there are doctors that are maybe not as thorough. How would we define that? Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I guess time and how their approach would be. And I don't know if there's any standard for care. I haven't done any deep dive into that. But the way that um, I was understanding puberty blockers is that the one benefit is that when you are taking them... Um, Every time you take them is a decision. 
So it's almost like a commitment that has to happen between the parent and the child because they all have to be on the same page, right? Um, this is a hormone that you're, it's like changing the ratios of the hormones in your body that it's already producing. So um, one of the other things that they discussed was that gender identity lives in the brain. Um, there's a belief that when you do adjust those hormone ratios, it could affect your brain where then you may not have that same dysphoria. So that's something that they, they're like watching now in terms of the puberty blockers. So I, the other side to that is gender doesn't, you know, doesn't, uh, exist only in the brain. The gender identity could live in the brain is what they're saying. The way that you're, wouldn't that mean that there would be an actual test that they could do where they could actually you know, get something out of the body to do a, t a medical test to see, like, I'm confused on that. If yeah, we, if we're only doing questionnaires, which I'm sure we'll talk about, <laughs> then it goes back to the rhetorical persuasive parts of the question. Yeah, yeah. And if, if people are answering just questionnaires for diagnosis, and I think that's the importance of, of time, right? And, and this is something that the, the medical industry struggles with. They don't put the time towards really working with clients, they almost immediately jump towards the treatment. Correct. And I think the treatment should be a well thought out process and confirmed confirm through multiple areas of either a medical doctor and then a, a psychologist to determine whether or not something is completely accurate. And I don't think that's happening at every every clinic in the United States. Roger, can you talk about the, I mean, our, our um, new psychologists, psychiatrists, everybody being trained extensively on this or is there? I wouldn't say, like anything, you can develop specialties. And I have questions about that. What makes somebody a gender therapist, right? Based, based on, on what type of, of training. My concern, Sean brings up a good point. There's, a, there's a, an intervention called um, watchful waiting. Okay. Uh, watchful waiting is not incorporated enough in American society. Mm -hmm. Watchful waiting is simply, you know, being able to continue to intervene with somebody in a supportive way without any invasive medical intervention. So just, a, just imagine um, if, if people came in discussing like clinical depression into your medical office and the doctors decided to not start a course of psychiatric drugs. There is really good emerging evidence that su suggests that that watchful waiting allows the normal process to kind of play itself out and resolve itself. And you prevent a high percentage of people going down the route of invasive psychiatric drugs with a lot of health effects and side effects. The same approach probably should be implemented with such a vulnerable developmental period like adolescence mm -hmm. instead of taking on a stance of affirmative care why not take on a stance that's more neutral and explorative yeah that there are multiple hypotheses about why someone may be experiencing gender dysphoria one of them might be that they are a transgender individual and they meet that population, that percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. But when we see this dramatic rise in numbers, we know that there are other hypotheses. And that's what takes us to the, the work of Lisa Littman. Yeah. 
Uh, Lisa Littman uh, is a is a researcher at Brown University. Her 2018 study uh, was 256 detailed parent reports. It's um, do you have the title of the study, Sean? Oh, you know, I, I don't. I, I wrote down some notes from... I uh, sent it to you, so why don't you, you just... Let, yeah. me, let me pull it up, and I'll we'll include it, it in the show summary. I'll, I'll include links to a lot of the research that Roger's read and some other links from us. So if you ever want to go back and read, look in our show summary. I'm including as many links as possible. And again, a lot of the, a lot of the research started with, our, with the book Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. We have to give her credit. Uh, and in the book, she also interviews Lisa Littman. It's a, it, the title is Parent Reports of Adolescents and Young Adults Perceived to Show Signs of a Rapid Onset of Gender Dysphoria. Great. Thanks, Kali. Um, Thanks, it is gathering data from parents of these trans adolescents who had no previous history of gender dysphoria. Again, which is that rapid onset and that rise. It, this is emerging. We haven't seen it previously. Um, parents seem to be reporting similar similar patterns or similar stories. So, you know, we have to look into some of this qualitative research too, kind of these case studies and see what patterns are emerging. And these parents described that their teens' mental health worsened after identifying as transgender and changing names and and changing pronouns. So I think that's really important to us as psychologists because we want to make recommendations and intervene in a way that improves mental health. I don't know if we have enough evidence to, to suggest that when you're young and you are struggling with gender dysphoria, that changing your identity, changing your name improves mental well-being. Um, this group appears to demonstrate what is rather an atypical etiology compared to those who would present as as transgender at an early age. Um, It seemed to be intensified by social media, uh, friend groups, and and group acceptance. Uh, And it includes a group of girls who traditionally would be vulnerable for a range of emotional and behavioral disorders. You know, as we discussed in, in previous podcast episodes from what the hell is society doing to teenage girls um, to our podcast on social contagion. So that question is, is this just a new maladaptive coping mechanism, not that dissimilar from an eating disorder or cutting or adopting, uh, you know, an identity or a group identity around your own mental health. Now, one particular hypothesis would be well, society is just you know, becoming more progressive. So we're allowing, because of an increased social acceptance of LGBTQ members, are just more people safely kind of presenting in that way that would have never have occurred in you know, previous generations because of cultural factors. This doesn't seem likely um, because it wouldn't, it wouldn't account for um, how it's clustered in friend groups and the rise is much more higher than what would traditionally account for LGBTQ communities. So it certainly looks like there's, there's other factors. And we wouldn't know why the age of onset uh, increased and the sex ratio flipped like it did. Right. I mean, we're seeing the trend even at where, where, where I teach. And um, there's been several students who seem to be very at ease. There's been others that I think have, 
have, you know, it, it hasn't really affected them positively. Um, how much of, how much of this could be attributed to, cause in the study, she talks a little bit about parent and child conflict yeah, and, and the way that it's handled. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think we start brainstorming all the other factors that would lead someone making this transition outside of the fact that they're truly transgender, because we're at a point now where there's a, there's enough adults who are undergoing what's called detransitioning. We'll talk about this as we progress this podcast. Adults that have transitioned that are now going back. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And uh, are, you know, are quite vocal about um, the reasons they were, they believe that they became transgender in the first place. So we'll get to that in a second, but let's stay on this topic. We have to think about what are the other causes. So if body dissatisfaction in females during development is normal, then there's going to be a percentage that are going to struggle with that at a more intense kind of experience than, than others. They might lack the skills to be able to deal with such um, emotional distress that's related to it. They may be more vulnerable to identifying as, as transgender. Um, but also trauma victims. So imagine you know, being a, a victim of, of abuse, molestation, sexual abuse, rape, which in our previous podcast, we talked about that percentage. It is not abnormal then to develop with, with body hate. And if you're a, uh, a female, to also view your gender as, as increasing your vulnerability to being harmed. So as a trauma reaction is another potential factor. All of these things in a sound, evidence-based, ethical, and safe psychological therapy, parents should be able to trust that clinicians can understand and support an exploratory and supportive therapy without pushing them into um, a transgender community and invasive medical procedures before they have even been able to be able to make those decisions developmentally. Um, we've talked about social media. Uh, we've talked about the, the development of eating disorders, um, self-injury, depression, anxiety. As those begin to, to increase, you might be looking for a solution. And it is, when we talk about a maladaptive coping skill, it almost becomes like a solution within this community. If it's your body that is the problem, if you change your body, then you're going to feel better. But we don't see that um, under you know, uh, body dysmorphic disorder or eating disorders. In, in the groups of, of anorexia, they tend to get become more miserable the more they change their body, the more they, they, they fall into the calorie restriction and the severe... Uh, medical consequences of being underweight. We also see that with uh, with plastic surgery. If you have what's called uh, body dysmorphic disorder and you're changing your body through plastic surgery, we don't see improved mental health outcomes the more you change your body. You know, I spent 16 years in, in Los Angeles. So I was living in West LA for a period of time, I was working in West Hollywood, so I was exposed to a lot of the community. And um, I grew comfortable 
you know, I wasn't exposed to that much in, in Nazareth, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, but when you're in Los Angeles, you become friends with a lot of people in the gay community and you relate to them, you hang out with them, you socialize with them. And I would say over the last five years, I am, I'm, I know of quite a few stories of um, children who have uh, gone through high school, transitioned, and um, are still suicidal and depressed. And I know of other families that have a young child who um, is gender dysmorphic and they're trying to find the support system for that child to go to school and, and live the life that uh, she wants to live. So this is this discussion to me is like, I, I understand two sides of the equation here from my personal experiences and a situation that went poorly in a situation that's probably going to go well. So I don't know what went wrong with the, the one um, situation and how that came to be, but it's just, I struggle with such a dramatic decision and trying and trying to put myself into their their shoes where they think this is the right thing to make their child happy and then ultimately it doesn't work then what so there's still over 55% of individuals that have either talked about going through or going through did state in the survey that in that study that they felt um they did not receive adequate professional opinion or informed consent that it was too quickly. Well, I mean, they still might've gone through the process, but they still, when asked, did you feel that you were well-prepared or you were well-educated on everything about what you were going through? 50, over 55% said no. So to answer your question, I still think it comes back down to, um, we don't have adequate information or where they're turning for information might be just to websites. Mm -hmm. the, The scientific literature is, really just evolving right now. Um, so it's very possible. Is it, is it a, um, a preconceived notion or some type of image in their head that if they are to transition to another gender, that they will 100% feel like that other gender when in reality, there's still going to be a number of situations where they're, they're still not going to, they're going to look at themselves and see some differences. It's a good point because a lot of the data that's coming back right now is it's difficult to pass as another gender, even when you undergo medical therapies to try to change your gender. The one thing that we didn't touch on was um, the role of like sexual preference in this. This is completely separate discussion from gender dysmorphia, right? Because I don't think it, I don't think it should be because there's, there's sex, there's gender, there's sexual preference. I feel like they're almost, some of my experience has been someone who, um, female transitions to male, but is attracted to, to males and then, or attracted to females. And, and that's, there's, there's almost like, I don't want to use the word spectrum because it's, it's used so much, but there's a lot of, there's a spectrum. There is a spectrum. Well, and we're, and we're going to adolescence too, where we're talking about that. This is a, this is a period of identity development. There's a lot about teens that are still just figuring, they're still figuring out about their sexual identity mm-hmm. or their sexual preferences. And there's, there's some discussion in the, in the detransitioning kind of communities right now that um, you know, young girls who traditionally would have been lesbian and um, adopt typical or um, stereotypical kind of male 
uh, presentation, whether they're they're athletes or they've kind of uh, more adopted to what is stereotypically more male behaviors, that they have been pushed into viewing themselves as as transgender when in fact they're they're just lesbian. So there's a lot of these questions because we're talking about the vulnerability of a of a developmental period where many people don't yet know. Um, you're talking about a group of people who've never had a sexual experience. Mm-hmm. And just the, the development, haven't even developed uh, full sexual organs. And, and so it, it's obviously this is experimental in so many ways. I think what, you know, what we're starting to see around the world are other countries are just starting to tap the brakes a little bit on these gender reassignment surgeries and the use of hormones and puberty blockers. So I'm just going to go through a couple countries and then compare that to the Biden administration and what's happening in the United States. In Sweden, the National Board of Health and Welfare has urged restraint in the use of hormonal drug treatments for medicalized gender change with minors, warning that the risks appear to outweigh the benefits. In the UK, the evidence for using puberty-blocking drugs to treat young people struggling with their gender identity is very low. An official review was found. Existing studies of the drug were small and subject to bias and confounding variables. Does this kind of feel familiar to our listening audience when we start talking about um, the medical establishment's rush to medical intervention in particular populations. In France, they identify a sterilization risk from gender medicine. Um, The French National Academy of Medicine has sounded the alarm about an epidemic-like surge in young people seeking hormone drugs and surgery. You're talking, this is about informed consent, folks, that they're young, their parents are often removed from the process. And when they're part of the process, they're told, if you do not make this transition, your child is at risk of suicide. So it's almost like a fear-based kind of approach to medical transition without the support of data. Let's go to Finland. Finland prioritizes psychotherapy over hormones and rejects surgery for gender dysphoric minors. Australia and New Zealand psychiatrists have been alerted to the ethical and legal risks of medicalized gender change for young people and the lack of good evidence on whether it helps or harms. Now the U.S. administration has issued a series of statements endorsing medicalized gender change for minors and claims that puberty blocker drugs and cross-sex hormones are evidence-based. So the the greater question here is, this is ideology and not science. What is the ideology that is driving this? So I I touched on it in in a previous discussion that we had that I feel like people of influence let their own personal experiences drive recommendations of changes of protocol, changes to approach of things. And I feel like that's happening in this situation here. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, again, just being in education, the the messages that come out, you, you're you're overall you accept everyone, everyone is equal, and and that message just continues. And then, you know, when you when you bring up any scientific evidence, or you try to question it, you really are you're putting yourself out there as at risk for you know you're being criticized or canceled, so to speak, even though you're just asking questions. 
Yeah, that's what's concerning to me is um, our attempts to try to find data on those who have detransitioned, our attempts to really find long-term uh, negative effects of those who do, to find effective mental health research on those who, of those who have transitioned is challenging. In yeah. fact, everything that's really, that we've been able to observe would suggest two things to me there really is no positive impact for those who transition. We did not see a decrease in suicide rates. In fact, um, I can just read one quote right now. Um, Dr. Paul Hiruz, H-R-U-Z, who's an associate professor of pediatric endocrinology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, states that the number of suicidal the number with suicidal ideation with plan and attempt was greater in those who had been on puberty blockers and a higher rate of attempts leading to inpatient hospitalizations. But there are controversies in, in the data. Those who report that um, they improve mental health outcomes tend to have very high attrition rates, which means dropout um, and potential misrepresentation of the data, taking something short term and just, and kind of talking about it as a, as a long-term positive effect, which we've seen, uh, you know, the, the concerns and other, you know, data reported by the pharmaceutical companies. Our, our question here is like, also like this period of, um, this period of adolescent develop is such rapid biological change. What happens when you interfere with it? Right? Like that's, that's relatively new. I mean, you're, you're interfering with the, with the body's natural you know, process of adaptation, brain development and hormones together. There are absolutely consequences to this. Um, you know, these, these hormones are associated with like, like real, uh, mood lability, right? we talk about the normal mood lability, the teenage angst. Now you're going to be like shooting testosterone into a biological female. Just a lot of concerns, right? And I don't want to take a stance on, Either way, because it goes back to everyone has a right to live the, the life that they choose. And, and so we are recognizing the risks here on this podcast. And we're also understanding that there are cultural factors that can push somebody and parents into making decisions with long-term consequences that they haven't been informed of. Yeah, that's your position on everything we talk about in this room is informed consent. Recognizing that there's two sides to every conversation understand the risks, understand the benefits. It's the decision that you need to make for yourself. Don't be pressured. Don't rush into anything. Yeah. And if there's clinics popping up where someone can walk in without the consent of a parent and get treatment, that's concerning. And that does happen in some states, according to some of the things that I was exposed to, which was a little surprising. Yeah. And, and imagine working in the mental health field or the medical field and you're adopting a perspective of weightful watching mm -hmm. or you're adopting the idea that gen, a, a client of yours presenting as gender dysphoric, there might be multiple other causes other than that person being transgender. That would could put your license at risk because you would be acting outside the standard of care. So in your situation, if you wouldn't affirm you could be putting your license at risk. You yeah. could, yeah. right? Because that's, that's, right. that's an ethical violation. In fact, I can bring up the American Psychological 
Association has their uh, own ethical guidelines around this. If you can give me one second here. What would your approach be in these situations? Time and talk and spending time with parents and child? Yeah. So for me personally, um, we have this data. Yeah. I think that you talk about the data. Um, you accept certain things to be true. That how a person presents and what they think and what they feel at what one point in development does not necessarily mean that they're going to experience this at another time in development. Yeah. That there are multiple causes that could exist. Now, the problem is that that some of these girls are being like pushed to be able to say the right things. Now there's predominantly, influencers, predominantly mm-hmm. girls. We're talking predom- we're talking about the yeah. the rise in, in females, yep, right? Yep, yep. They're being they're going they're being pushed to tell their therapist or their medical professional that they've been experiencing gender dysphoria since they were young. But that's why you need to have parent self-report to make sure that that's congruent. But you, there are challenges with that, right? So if you were to get, now I'm just thinking about the business side of this thing. Having a psychologist who's trained to work with adolescents is, um, is rare because, you know, just talking with an adolescent is challenging, right? It's difficult to get an adolescent into your room, have an open conversation where they don't feel like they're speaking to an adult, that you're almost, you know, you're exchanging normal conversation to really get information gathering, right? And adolescents don't speak with parents. They just don't share the way that they do with their friends. So a parent's almost always last to figure things out or they're at a disadvantage. I think that's partially true, but I think parent and and child relationship, even in adolescence can be a big part of all of this. If you have to have that positive relationship that doesn't always look nice, it doesn't always look perfect, but I do think that a lot of individuals are willing to open up to parents, you know, more so than you would think. I'm going to use one adult transitioning uh, example. Um, Sorry. Um, the uh, the Olympic athlete uh, with the Kardashians. Well, sorry, it's my nut. Bruce Jenner. Bruce Jenner, who transitioned to uh, Caitlyn. Caitlyn Jenner. Um, the whole reason why he waited as long to transition to the female is because of his mother. He didn't want to disappoint. So there's a dynamic there in terms of like having a strong parental relationship um, where you don't want to hurt them. Right, but that's not a po- that to me wouldn't be like that positive relationship. You yeah. know, that, that I think that that's a little different. You know, if you're only living to please your parent, that's not necessarily a positive. Good point. Parenting. Good point. So I'm going to um, speak to some of the guidelines here, and this is really important for all psychologists. And people don't always recognize that um, there are different mental health professionals. Like a social worker has a different training background and ethical code than a psychologist. And a, and psychiatrists are a medical professional, um, but guideline eight from the American Psychological Association in 2015 clearly states that psychologists working with gender questioning and transgender youth understand the different developmental needs of children and adolescents, and that not all youth will present in a transgender identity into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So that's very very clear. The question is how many therapists under an affirmative care application understand 
that just because they're presenting in, to them in, in front of them at this particular time does not suggest that this will continue as they go through adolescence into adulthood. And, and that's, you're bringing up a challenging point is at some point you need to distinguish between the two and, and how do you do that? You do that with, with time. With time. And as a parent, I would believe on the medical side, you'd be, being, you'd be pressured saying like, hey, listen, you've identified this now at the age of 11, 12. Uh, puberty is starting to kick in. You feel pressured to take a step such as puberty blockers while pursuing some type of psychological assessment to determine um, whether or not this needs to go to the next step or if it's going to um, kind of go away. And, yeah, and as, as, a, as a parent, in my own personal opinion, I still think that because a lot of this is relying on questions and answers and your responses mm-hmm. to surveys, before going into that direction of you know pharmaceuticals, I would want to take the time as much as possible for that talk therapy, for that, because I, I just... I, I would, I, you, I would you know, too. You, if, you're changing, you know, a yeah. person's life and it could be for the better, could be, but yeah. it just seems to me like if you're just going into it very quickly. Um, there, there was one uh, trans youth doctor who was an advocate uh, or is an advocate of puberty blockers. And she said, you know, you can't predict the future. This may not be the right thing for your child in the future, but maybe it is the right thing for them now by just simply taking puberty blockers and, you know, waiting to see what happens over the course of the next, you know, 15 to 18 months because um, does it reduce harm? That's, that's more of my question. Like, will it reduce harm um, by taking the puberty blockers? And it, that's, well, it's a question. It, it's I, I don't a, think there's it, an answer. It's for a it. research question. Mm-hmm. And those research questions tend to be, you know, rather complex and not simplified. You know, they're not yes or no. Often it's for whom, under what conditions, at what time, mm-hmm. right? And we don't have that data. Maybe there, there's a percentage of people where the administration of puberty blockers does decrease suicidality. But who are they? At what point in development? Under what conditions? And what is that person's unique history? Compared to others um, where doing so could create great harm, increase the likelihood of a suicide event, um, sterilization and impact the natural development of that individual. So these are really, and we said in the beginning, humanistic. These are humanistic questions of the highest ethical order that we have to think very, very, com- um, we have to think through because many children, they don't have this ability to be able to predict what they're going to want down down the line we can't remove families and updated science from this conversation yeah now let's talk a little bit more about the the cultural effects Mm -hmm. it almost feels like there is a push in society to eliminate the idea of gender altogether are you guys witnessing that same thing i'm seeing it what is what is the benefit of such a thing i don't know what the, the benefit is i don't know who benefits from it so I'm always like, well, what's, what's in it for them? Why would, and by them, I mean this general progressive movement to push for, for those, because I just think about what the slippery slope is going to be 10 years down the line. There are other countries that are not 
um, in this in this vein, in terms of the language, and and I'm I'm using language as the the main um, argument against it is. Think about like your identification card, your driver's license, your passport. The purpose of those is to look at somebody and say you are that person. But when you start messing with that stuff, and then you travel to another country, they're going to look at I don't I don't know. You're saying you're this gender, but your identification shows otherwise. We don't do that here. I'm confused. I don't think you're the right person. Let me put you off to the side. Now that's an that's probably an exaggerated example. But I can see examples of like that happening sometime in the future. And the, the one thing that was very confusing to me was the amount of terms that describe gender identity and expression. And it constantly evolves, and there's so many of them, which is what's causing a lot of confusion for most people that are not in that space. I saw there's 68 terms right now. There's 68 terms. And as somebody who might be exposed to all those terms... And you might be struggling with something, especially as an adolescent, you might read through all those and say, oh, I think this one's more like me, but maybe it's more like me right now. doesn't mean it's more like you forever. Well, okay. Um, it's confusing. It is. It's very confusing. And I'm concerned when there seems to be widespread efforts to detach people from what is reality. When you can no longer clearly state what is a male and what is a female? Who is that benefiting? And there are feminist movements right now who are really talking about of this being like anti-women because no longer, you know, it is, it is a woman who menstruates, not this a is, person who this menstruates. This is where sex and gender come in because I see sex as your biological, chromosomal, um, you were either born a male, a female, or you're one in the um, sexual birth abnormalities where it's a, uh, you know, double XXY. Those are the basic, which are very, which, which are rare it's like medical a, conditions. One in 5,000 is what I saw. Okay. So, you know, it's very clearly that there are, there are differences, sex differences between men and women. Now we're in this weird cultural space where people are unable to even like clearly identify what is a male versus a female, not based on any science, based on some strange cultural adaptation that I still have yet to understand who it benefits. And when it's being pushed by politicians, I guess, and, and the arm of the media that supports that political group, I get more concerned about, is this more about confusing people and detaching people from reality? And I go back to previous podcasts that, that we had on how governments have, have sought to control their people, that one of the ways they've done it is to detach them from all aspects of reality. It's, it's created a, a confusion and a division. Um, having 68 different names for gender, I have no idea who this supports psychologically or it improves their quality of their life. But we can sit here and have a long discussion about how that confusion and the use of identity-based politics divides people and makes it much more difficult to connect with what is real and has negative psychological consequences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. There's major political figures, even the, the current judge that just was approved sat there and said, well, I'm not a biologist when asked, you know, <clears throat> about gender. And it's just like, well, you can still answer that question and not be judged, right? We're still, there's females, there's males. Like we know biologically. Very clear, it's accepted clear. science. So I'm not quite sure what, what, what this benefits either. And we've had that discussion earlier. I don't know. 
Um, there are certainly theories, you know. Well, um, there's there's an argument between sex and gender, and sex is the biological component, and then gender is the presentation, presentation, the characteristics of of women and men, such as the norms, roles, relationships of and between groups of women and men, and a lot of that is constructed socially. Now we're talking about the role of nature versus nurture in this situation. Yeah, I, I mean, it, some is, is certainly is 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 nature. Other is is nurture. Like mm-hmm. for example, we all know the role testosterone plays yep. in aggressiveness, uh, size, protectiveness. Yes. Um, so, like, there are clear differences biologically with hormones and the effect that it has on on human behavior. But there's a range in that, and it's probably complex, right? That traditional gender roles can be accepted by either either sex, mm-hmm. um, and there's and variability exists. But I think that's okay that we can accept that to be true, while acknowledging that there are major differences between biological males and females. Yes, there are, and it's why we have this new controversy, which shouldn't be a controversy, but males transitioning to females and then competing in female sports, which obviously places the women's movement and um, women being able to compete on a fair and level playing field at risk. Yeah, well, sports should be separated by sex, not by gender identity. Because males are larger and stronger because of testosterone. Facts. Females are not. Yeah, I mean, these are are facts. Yeah, there was that... I mean, it's happening with the um, males transitioning to females and breaking swimming records, and and then also the Leah boxing. That was the boxer, um, the one that uh, a male transitioned to female M- and MMA fighter basically destroyed the female in the ring. And Almost she said killed she's her. Never felt so overpowered in her life. Like you cannot separate those two just because somebody says I'm I'm female. That's, yeah. So going back to what you asked is, well, then why do why why are we going through all this? I, I guess the answer would be to make sure that people's mental health would be actually better in the entire long run. So if if, if are we seeing that? We are not. Okay. Right. And doesn't doesn't the identity confusion create more problems? I've made this statement on this podcast before. I say it to my clients. I've never seen somebody truly content and happy create, creating a life of personal value when their focus is entirely on themselves. This idea of constantly changing your physical presentation or adopting a new identity somehow improves your quality of life and your psychological well-being um, is not an accurate one. You know, I think when people find purpose in, in, in love and in community, that can, that can certainly improve well-being. But this idea that your attention and focus is constantly trying to change what you feel is wrong with you. And when we're confusing a culture and society about everything what we knew to be true, I don't see that as, as progress because we don't see it. I mean, there, there's a percentage of people who now include their pronouns who are traditionally male, female. They're not transgender. Mm-hmm. And they include their, their pronouns like in their, in their bios, in their LinkedIn and, and things like that. For the purpose of inclusion. For the purpose of inclusion. Yeah. The question is, does that improve this idea of inclusion? Does it improve psychological well-being? Does it improve community? And I, we don't have the evidence that it does. It, it includes more, it, more confusion, yeah, right? The evidence like, is assumed that it does. 
right? right? It's assumed. There's no science to back it. There's nothing. There's no research that's been done on that, but it's assumed. And it just like you said, it's almost like, well, I have to do this because I'm in this certain profession. And if I don't, I'm going to be judged as I'm not being inclusion. I, I Personally, I would just think you would include that if you want to be referred to right. differently. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then most people would be like, that's fine. Absolutely. That's fine. Absolutely. So yeah, you're talking about what the DSM-4 or the DSM-5 is 0.01.4% of natal males and 0.002 to 0.003% of natal females that the rest of the human population then has to identify their pronouns even when you clearly present yourself as male as female. Yeah, there's no confusion on your end. Right. It, it doesn't make sense. It, it would make sense that if you are transgender and you have certain characteristics and you want to communicate to the rest of the world, these are your pronouns, then you can present yourself that way. Yeah. Yep. It, it doesn't make a, a lot of sense. And I've asked other transgender individuals if um, being be, those who are not transgender being able to identify pronouns, does that improve their quality of life in, in any way? And they usually laugh, right? Right, right. So it's like these things that are pushed from a sect of society that don't seem to have any particular value, but it becomes virtue signaling, right? So like if you put it in your, in your, in your Twitter feed or you put it on your professional bio, that's somehow you then communicating, hey, then I'm, I'm supportive of you. As if you don't, then you're not. Right. And it's that binary way of, of looking at human nature. You're either with us or you're against us. That in-group, out-group perspective that I think is really problematic. And that's why you know, I'm proud of some of the discussions that we've had on this podcast because we've talked about dialectical thinking mm. and we've talked about biases. And we've been very clear about forces in culture and government and ideas that are dividing people for their own political gain and power. And we don't have to allow that to happen as society. I don't have to identify he or him as my pronouns in my professional bio to support somebody who's transgender. I support you because you're a human. I support you because you deserve respect and I can care about you. We don't have to put these this virtue signaling um, concepts out there to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm part of you because I don't think that improves society. And one thing that I get frustrated with is when anything becomes politicized. And I don't know why gender dysphoria has to be a, a right or a left thing. It should just be a discussion amongst the medical community on what the evidence-based approach should be. Anytime politicians start getting involved in something, I just think it's it's just mostly crap coming out of their it's mouth. For their, it's for their power. Yeah, I don't, I don't trust anything that they're saying or it's a, a biased perspective or an exaggerated form of some statistic to try and prove a point and influence people away from something. The medical community, the psychological community, they need to be working together here exactly. to come up with the best solution. Right. It is not a political discussion. They're fighting for votes. They're like, oh, here's a group of people. I want your votes. Yes. What's in it for me is this the question you always have to ask and you know what's in it for them. And what's interesting is there is a group of people that is growing, that is growing by bounds and numbers that have gone through the process of transitioning and now are actually detransitioning. Mm -hmm. And reasons uh, for that are actually the number one reason is the medical complications that they are experiencing. Can we move into the, the into that population and why it seems as if they... Um, 
They're on social media. They're trying to educate people. They're talking about it. It's a serious thing. Mm -hmm. And yet it's very difficult to find them. You have to go to Reddit in some cases. You have to, in Twitter, Substack. they're being, yeah, Substack, they're being canceled mm -hmm. as if yeah. that voice shouldn't be there. But you, these are individuals that said, I, I, I wanted to go through this. I went through it. And now I'm telling you, please reconsider or at least take your time because I went through it too quickly. And because of the medical complications they're experiencing at a, a later age, mm -hmm. they're now trying to educate people. Can I report a paper? This is a uh this is Lisa Littman again. This is her recent paper in uh, 2021, uh, Archives of Sexual Behavior. Uh, individuals treated for gender dysphoria with medical and or surgical transition who subsequently detransitioned a survey of 100 detransitioners. So here are the attempts to, to try to gather data on those who transitioned and then wanted to transition back. This is an important um, scientific inquiry that is required for informed consent. Yeah, it's asking the why, why, why. Exactly. Um, so just some some detail here. 69% of the 100 uh, participants were natal female. 31% were natal male. Reasons for transitioning were varied and included experiencing discrimination, 23%, becoming more comfortable identifying as their natal sex, 60%, Having concerns about potential medical complications from transitioning, 49%, and coming to view their gender dysphoria was caused by something specific, such as trauma, abuse, or a mental health condition. That was 38%. Um, 60% was being more comfortable with their, with their birth sex. Yes. Yep. Wow. Um, the majority, and Kelly mentioned this earlier, 55% felt they did not receive an adequate evaluation from a doctor or mental health prof professional before starting transition. Only 24% of respondents informed their clinicians they had detransitioned. De mm. um, you know, there's, there's this other cultural aspect that we failed to mention because when you look at the rise in, you know, middle class, upper middle class, white women who are, are white girls who are the ones who are driving these numbers, we have to look at the, the push to adopt a minority status, mm -hmm. um, an oppressed minority status in society. And we referred to this in previous podcasts because if you are of the majority culture, you know, in, at least at this particular time in the United States, you're, there's a lot of guilt because of the discussions that exist out there and uh, how it's communicated, right? Like whether it's from racism or it's, it's oppression in, in, in from various institutions. If you are um, of the privileged status and that word is being used out there, it produces a, a lot of feelings of, of self-hate and self-guilt. And so there is a, a reward or social reinforcement for identifying, and they're reporting this. Uh, this isn't my opinion. They're reporting this for being, you know, identified with an oppressed group. Now that kind of, those type of statements are controversial in today's society because we were talking about this in a, in a previous podcast around social contagion. Why would anyone be want to identify, you know, with a mental illness? Well, because there's some social reward to it, or there's there's adoption of a group identity that's really important. Did that Littman report um, come to some final conclusion or recommendations? 
in terms of um, steps that others should take to overcome some of the challenges that those who have detransitioned? Well, the, and at the end, it basically the conclusion is we need far more. We need more information. Scientific, yeah. real, credible, peer-reviewed, uh, trustworthy sources. Here's the other thing. When people were going through this, um, and they were trying to, so parents included, mm -hmm. they were investigating. So they got their information from obviously their, their doctor or, or their psychologist. They also got their information though. They trusted 47% of the time they would only go to transgender websites as viable information, which means that there was maybe perhaps no scientific, actual scientific study, peer reviewed journals, anything. They were just trusting those sites. Yeah, basically the outcome is this. More research is needed to determine how best to provide support and treatment for the long-term medical and psychological well-beings of individuals who transition. Finding Findings about detransition should be used to improve our understanding of gender dysphoria and to better inform the processes of evaluation, counseling, and informed consent for individuals who are contemplating transition. And that's our, that's our position today. Mm -hmm. is that there are, uh, there are negative consequences to transitioning, that there are multiple factors why someone in a developmental period such as adolescence, females in particular, might identify as gender dysphoria, and those have to be explored. They have to be understood. Informed consent is an ethical and legal imperative um, families should be informed of the risks and the concept of um, weightful watching um, should be implemented in a supportive exploratory way because we're seeing the negative consequences both psychologically and medically from this rapid onset and then quick medicalization of that experience while other countries around the world are starting to adopt policies which greater inform the communities of such a such a change and they're putting the brake on this the united states is pushing forward with this affirmative care and supporting the medical transitioning of adolescents be careful of this parents and as a community, as a mental health community, let's be aware of emerging data and let's take a more scientific approach to the evaluation and treatment of those with gender dysphoria and not make it a political issue. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words... I was just thinking about you may make their day. Thank you for listening.